How many of you remember the old story about the blind men and the elephant? Anybody remember that story? Six blind men and an elephant. These six blind men, they live in a village together and they learn about an elephant. But of course, they've not seen an elephant. They've never touched an elephant. And they're wondering, what does an elephant look like? And so being blind, they decide, let's all go and let's feel the elephant and get a sense of what its form and its shape might be. And so the first blind man goes and grabs the trunk of the elephant and says, oh, I know what an elephant is like. An elephant is like a snake, like a thick snake. And then another blind man grabs the ear of the elephant and says, the elephant is like a fan, like a big fan. One of them grabs their leg and says, no, you're both wrong. The elephant is like a tree trunk. It's like, I couldn't get my arms around it. And then one of them touched the side of the elephant and said, no, the elephant is like a wall. And then one touched the tail and said, no, what do you guys, the elephant is like a rope. And then the last one touched the tusk of the elephant and said, you're all crazy, you're all wrong. I touched the elephant, it's hard, it's like a spear. And then they went into an argument about what the elephant actually looked like. And of course, the point of this little story, the point of this parable is that while your subjective view on truth might be partially true, while your experiences might lead you to partial truth, very often they they don't lead you to total truth. They don't lead you to the totality of truth. And so this morning, as we are walking into the last life or the last week of Jesus' life, and let me encourage you as we walk into the Passion Week together as a church to take time this week and to pause and to remember what Jesus was doing this last week of his life, especially this Friday on Good Friday. Take some time and give thanks for what Jesus did on the cross this, uh, this Good Friday. But as we look at this final week of Jesus' life, the way we're going to approach it together this morning is we're going to look at three different snapshots Three different scenes from the final week of Jesus' life. And in those scenes, we're going to be introduced to four different characters. And what we're going to learn about these four characters is that much like the blind man, they had some experience with Jesus and they had some sense of who he was, but they didn't have the total understanding of who he was. And what we're going to look at together this morning is two crowds and two criminals. Two crowds and two criminals. The first crowd we find in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 36, it's the crowd that saw Jesus as a king. This is Palm Sunday, of course, and this is the text that we celebrate and we gather around. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. He's riding on the back of a young donkey, and it says in verse 36 that as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near to Jerusalem, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. See, these were his disciples who had been following him outside of Jerusalem in the countryside of Galilee, and they'd seen Jesus' miracles, they'd seen his signs, they'd seen his wonders. Many of them entered into Jerusalem because of what he's done. And in verse 38, they say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What they're doing here is they're actually quoting from the Old Testament. In Psalm 118, it reads, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Psalm 118, there's sort of an implication that they're singing about a king. But what's implicit in the Psalms becomes explicit in the Gospel of Luke. Because the disciples who are there to welcome Jesus, they don't sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They actually modify the Psalm and they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And this has to make us pause and go, why did they think Jesus was a king? He wasn't on a stallion. He wasn't on a horse. He didn't come with soldiers and impressive uh, people around him. He was a traveling rabbi, a relatively impoverished rabbi who came riding on the back of a little donkey and they looked at him and they saw a king. That wouldn't normally make any sense. Except the Jewish people who were being oppressed by the Romans, they were desperately awaiting for their king to come. 
desperately waiting for their Messiah. And they were very familiar with all the Old Testament passages that promised that this Messiah would come. And there's one passage in particular I want to read to you from Zechariah, an Old Testament prophet named Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. Look what he prophesied uh, in chapter 9, verse 9. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, and shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. I think we have this verse. Um, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here's Zechariah saying, your king is going to come to you someday, and he's going to be on the back of a donkey. And Jesus comes in, and they cry out because Jesus is the king that they've been waiting for. But what they're not aware of is that Jesus enters into Jerusalem this week not to be lifted up onto a throne, but to be lifted up, to, lifted up onto a cross. And they never could have known, and they never would have guessed, and they never would have understood how this week would go. And here we are at the end of Jesus' life, we're getting near his death, and there's two things about this story, there's two things as we approach the end of his death that remind us about the beginning of his life, his very birth. And the first thing is this, the humility, the humility of this scene. Again, Jesus doesn't come entering in on a stallion, on a horse, he comes entering in on a donkey. Now, Friday was beautiful out, and our girls are out of school already. They had a kind of jump start on spring break, and so we decided to take them to the zoo. We're members at the zoo, and so we went to the zoo, and while we were at the zoo, uh, Madeline, our youngest one, said, let's go, Daddy, let's go to the stinky barn. If you've been to the zoo, you know what they're talking about. It's like goats and pigs. Let's go to the stinky barn. Now, she tricked us because she didn't actually go into the stinky barn. She's smart enough to stay outside of the stinky barn in her wheelchair. She made us go into the stinky barn. So as we're walking into the stinky barn, I see a donkey. Now, normally, who goes to the zoo to see a donkey? Nobody. Why do we go to the zoo? To see the lions and the tigers and the giraffes with their long necks and the elephants, these massive creatures. And, and honestly, don't we all really go for the monkeys? I mean, aren't we all going to hoping that we'll see the monkeys do something crazy like throw their poop at each other or something like that's That's really why we all go to the zoo. And so there I am at the zoo waiting and, and, I, and I see this donkey and knowing that I'm preaching this text on Sunday, I take some time and I stop and I look at the donkey because normally I would walk right past the donkey. I wouldn't look at it. You know what I learned? Donkeys are the most boring animals at the zoo. They literally do nothing. Even the sloth is more interesting than the donkey. And the donkey is just standing there. And the donkey also, this is my, my other conclusion I came to, the donkey is the most unimpressive animal in the zoo. It's so unimpressive. And Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, yes, to fulfill prophecy, but also to show this is the sort of king I am. I'm a king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And it reminds us of his birth, the way that he was born. His birth was announced to lowly shepherds, and he was born in a cave or in an inn or in the courtyard, most likely, of an animal feeding area, just born out in the open because there was no place for Mary and for Joseph to be. And we see the humility of Jesus Christ. And what we're reminded of here is that Jesus is a king who's different from any other king that you're ever going to encounter, meet, or serve. But the other thing that... The other reason that this story reminds us of his birth is that it reminds us of the song of the angels. So when the angels came to the shepherds, they sang the song. What they sang in Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 14, they said, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth amongst those with whom God is well pleased. And what's interesting is that the heavenly chorus sang of peace on earth, but the earthly crowd on Palm Sunday, they sang of peace where? In heaven. So the angels at his birth sing of peace on earth, the crowd, as Jesus is nearing the end of his life, sings of peace in heaven. 
And I'm not sure that they knew what they were singing or they understood the, the profoundness of what was happening here. But here's the truth that we learn. There's never gonna be peace on earth if there isn't peace in heaven. If there isn't peace between God and humankind, then humankind has no hope for peace. And of course, Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey to bring peace, to reconcile us. He brings us peace to, to bring down the dividing wall of hostility between us and the Father. The crowd viewed Jesus as the deliverer and they viewed him as their king and they were right, but they were also wrong because he wasn't the type of king they hoped he would be. He wasn't the type of king they thought he would be. He wasn't the type of king that they wanted, but he was the king they needed and they didn't realize it yet. The crowd that saw uh, a king. Secondly, there's a crowd that saw a criminal. We're gonna fast forward four days through the, this final week of Jesus' life and we get to the point where four days later on Thursday night, Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and the Jewish leaders try him and they find him guilty of blasphemy. They can't actually... They can't actually convict him of anything. They can't even get their witnesses to be on the same page. But Jesus ultimately convicts himself with his own testimony. So he's convicted. And what the Jewish leaders want to do with this conviction, you know, once you're convicted, in, 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 uh, once you're convicted then you have to figure out what's your sentence, right? So he was convicted of blasphemy, and what they wanted for his sentence was they wanted him to be executed. They wanted him to be killed. But the Jewish leaders at this time in history, because they were under Roman rule, they actually had no right to order an execution. So they had to go to the Romans to get Jesus executed. And so what the Jewish leaders do is they drag Jesus over to Pontius Pilate, who's a governor of an area, and they say, this man is a blasphemer. He claims to be the king. We want to execute him. And Pontius Pilate doesn't want anything to do with this mess. He realizes this is an internal religious issue. He probably sees it for what it is. This is jealousy. This is a lot of things, but I don't want anything to do with it. So Pontius Pilate says, let's send him over to Herod. Now, Herod is the king, and so he comes over to Herod, and Herod is kind of amused by Jesus and interested in Jesus because he's heard about Jesus, but ultimately he sends him back to Pontius Pilate. And so Jesus comes back to Pontius Pilate, and he's before him. And this is where we, we learn a couple things. We learn that they both, Pontius Pilate and Herod, they're both sure that he's innocent. Neither one of them thinks he's evil, uh, that he's done anything wrong. But also, why does it go the way it goes? It goes the way it goes because they're both politically motivated. And here's what I mean. In that time, if you were a Roman ruler and there was a rebellion or a riot under your leadership, you were very often removed from your position of authority. And they didn't want to be removed. And it was Passover, which meant the population in Jerusalem was busting at the seams. Some people say that two to three million more Jewish people were in Jerusalem than normal during this time. And so here's Pontius Pilate. He's looking at this mob in front of him, this angry mob that we're going to read about in a moment. And he's thinking, if I don't do something, if I don't give them what they want, if I don't pacify this crowd, this is going to get ugly out there, and then it's going to be bad for me. He's politically motivated. And let's look at what happens beginning in verse 18 of Luke 23. The Jewish leaders, they've gathered a mob together to call for Jesus' execution. And it says this, but they all cried out to a man who'd been away with this man and released to us Barabbas. They want Barabbas. A man who'd been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. You see, Pilate wants to let Jesus go. Verse 21, they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And a third time, Pilate says to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. So he's saying, I'll punish him because he, he was, he was um, convicted of something, but this is not the sort of conviction that should lead to an execution of the state. Verse 23 says, but they were urgent, the crowd. The crowd. 
urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, his name was Barabbas, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. All four of the Gospels tell us that there was some sort of a custom at this time. On the religious holiday, the Roman leaders would release to the Jewish people one of their prisoners. One, someone who had been imprisoned, they would, they would release one. And here's what's, that's what's happening here. Pontius Pilate knows that he has this, he has this loop person. He's thinking, all right, I can get Jesus out of this. He hasn't done anything wrong. So I'm going to get the worst guy that I can find who's convicted and awaiting execution. And I'm going to bring him out. And I'm going to give them the ultimate would-you-rather choice. Would you rather have Jesus amongst your midst? This, this, this nice teacher, miracle worker, beautiful man? Or would you rather have Barabbas, this insurrectionist, this murderer? You know, Barabbas' name actually means son of the father, which is interesting, because in a sense, what they were choosing between was son of the father, lowercase f, and the son of the father, uppercase f. And so he, he puts them out there. He says, would you have Barabbas or would you rather have Jesus? And they say, give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. I'm sure Pilate was surprised. And here's what the crowd did. They chose for Jesus to die in the place of another man. They chose Jesus to be the scapegoat, Jesus to be the fall guy. And they, they went home that day probably thinking that Jesus had died in the place of Barabbas, and they were right, but they were right in ways they never could have understood. Yes, Jesus died in the place of Barabbas, but Jesus died in the place of all of us. Jesus died for all of us. He died in place of all of us. And, and they may have felt like they chose Jesus to die that day, but they didn't choose Jesus. They didn't choose the time that he would die. Jesus himself said to the Roman leaders, no one takes my life from me. I lay my life down. So Jesus chose to lay his life down. And it's interesting because not in Luke's account, but in Matthew's account, there's something that the people say. So Pontius Pilate gets to the point where he's gonna give in, but he says to the crowd, I don't want his blood on my hands. What he's saying is, I don't think he's guilty. Pontius Pilate's wife, by the way, had had a dream, and the dream had been like, don't, don't have anything to do with this man. But still, because he's afraid of the crowd, because he's politically motivated, he gives in. But he says this in Matthew. He says, I wash my hands of Jesus. I wash my hand of his blood. And the crowd yells this out in Matthew chapter 27, 25. His blood be on us and our, and our children. Think about that for a second. His blood be on us and our children. And what they were saying was, we'll take it. We'll take the guilt for it. We'll be responsible for this. What they didn't realize they were saying is something much more significant, that Jesus' blood is their only hope, that Jesus' blood would be on them and that he would be on their children. Now, before we get to the criminals, I just want to pause and notice something about the crowds, the two crowds. One crowd sees a king. The other crowd sees a criminal. One crowd worships him. The other crowd wants him dead. And the truth is, is that 2,000 years later, it's still the same deal. There's still really only two crowds when it comes to Jesus. Either you will fall on your face and you will worship him and you will devote yourself fully to him and you will see him for who he is, the Messiah, the Savior, the hope of the world, or you're going to reject him. And in rejecting him, you're basically yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. He's dead to me. I want nothing to do with him. A lot of times people like to think that they can just be okay with Jesus, just casual with Jesus. And if you study Jesus' life, if you study his claims, if you study the historicity of Jesus, if you study the impact of Jesus throughout history and on people's lives all over the world, the one thing you realize is that there's no such thing as a casual follower of Jesus. Once you really see him for who he is, you're either going to worship him or you're going to want him dead. 
You're either going to give everything to him or you're going to wish that he had nothing to do with you because he's come not just to be savior, but he's come to be Lord and he's come to be king. And we learn this from these crowds. So we have the two crowds and then now we have the two criminals. So Jesus is sent to be killed. He's, ex- he's, he's, he's sentenced to be executed and he's whipped and he's beaten and he carries his cross up the hill and he's crucified this is a Roman form of execution. It was the brutalist, cruelest form of execution. So cruel that within the next few hundred years, it actually was outlawed because they just determined it to be too cruel of a form of execution. And really what would typically happen with um, crucifixion is, of course, you know well that they were nailed to the cross, not through the hands and the, and, and the feet, but really through the wrists. And Because if you were to have crucified them through the hands, it wouldn't have held. So they would crucify them right through the wrist and then through the um, above the feet a little bit through the ankles to hold them in place. And then they would tie them there and they would, they would nail them there. But what killed them wasn't the wounds. What killed them eventually was suffocation. They would begin to suffocate uh, in their own bodily fluid. And so that's why if they didn't die fast enough, the Roman soldiers would come and break their legs because what the people on the cross would do is they would, as they were suffocating, they would push themselves up so they could gasp for breath and pull breath into their lungs and then they would fall back down into suffocation and then they would push themselves up and that's how they kept themselves alive. So that's why they broke their legs so that the criminals could no longer push themselves up and that's how they would typically die. Jesus, we know, died before they broke his legs fulfilling a prophecy that not one of his bones would be broken. And we believe that he may have died of a literal broken heart because when they pierced his side, blood and water flowed out. Jesus is crucified between these two criminals and it fulfills another prophecy in Isaiah 53, 12, where it says that in his death, Jesus will be numbered amongst the transgressors. So here's Jesus dying He's got a criminal on his right. He's got a criminal on his left. And we're going to see that one criminal saw Jesus as a fraud and another criminal saw Jesus as a savior. Well, let's look at this. Beginning in verse 39 of Luke 23. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He's mocking Jesus. The crowd has been mocking Jesus and now this criminal is joining in and he's mocking Jesus. He's angry. Verse 40, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? He's like, bro, the same thing's happened to him is happening to you. Don't you fear God? And then verse 41, he gives his reason. And we indeed, speaking for himself and the other criminal, we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. This criminal knows that Jesus is innocent. He doesn't deserve to die. And he turns to Jesus and he prays this, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The first criminal saw a fraud. He looked at Jesus and said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. And you know what we see in the heart of this criminal? Bitter, bitter scorn. Here he is dying. He has no thought for God. He has no thought of his guilt. He has no thought of the life that he's lived. He has no repentance. He has no remorse. He has no concern for forgiveness. And here's the tragedy for this criminal. He's right next to his one hope. Talk about, in a weird way, the favor of God on these two criminals, that they would be sentenced to die on the day that Jesus would, that they would be lifted up on a cross right next to Jesus, close enough to Jesus that they can apparently have a conversation with Jesus. And so the hope for his life is right next to him. The only chance he has for forgiveness of sins, the only chance he has for any sort of life beyond the cross, the only chance he has, the only chance that you and I have, is right next to him, and he can't see it. He can't see through his anger, He can't see through his bitterness. He can't see through his selfishness. He can't see through his pain. 
And the sad truth is, is that many people are still like that. They can't see through their selfishness, their anger, their pain, their loss. Many people in their pain actually turn against God. They use their pain as a weapon against God. They use the existence of pain as an argument for the lack of, for the non-existence of God. And so in their pain and in their anger, they, they can't turn to him. But some people in their pain actually do turn to God. And of course, the other criminal does. And this criminal who saw Jesus as a fraud, his statement, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us also. He's like, get yourself out of this, and while you're at it, get us out of it too, right? Yesterday, I was, uh, went to the men's breakfast in the morning. We had a breakfast over at Chick-fil-A, about a dozen men. We had a great time. And then afterwards, we came back, and my friend Jared, who welcomed you earlier this morning, uh, we've been trying to exercise a little bit and, and lose a little weight. We're trying to get ready for getting get into my Easter suit for next Sunday morning. And, uh, and so uh, he was like, let's, let's run when we get back. I'm like, bro, I got a chicken biscuit in my belly. Like, I'm not thinking about running. I'm thinking about napping. Like... But he's like, no, we, he's like, we need to run. Now, he likes to run. He's run his whole life. If you run your whole life, you like to run. But I haven't run my whole life. And so, like, my deal is, like, I'm an elliptical guy. Like, that's my deal. Like, I go to the YMCA. I'm like, get me on the elliptical. I like that. Uh, I don't like to run. And when I go to the YMCA, especially when I go by myself, and when I do try to run, as soon as I start breathing kind of heavily, and all of a sudden it starts to get, my legs start to get tired, you know, I start to suffer a little bit. Like, I'm just like, ah, oh, forget it. I'll just start walking again, or I'll just move over to the elliptical, or I'll go sit in the sauna for 20 minutes, or do something like that, and just kind of take it easy. But, but when you're running with someone else, you've you got to keep going, right? Because you kind of got that accountability. And so he's like, let's run three miles. And I was like, dude, I have never run. I remember in high school, in my entire life, I'm fairly confident I've never ran more than a mile in my entire life. I remember in high school, I had to run the mile a couple times, and that was it. And the second it was done, I didn't run one more step. I immediately fell into the fetal position. Like, so run a mile, fall into the fetal position. That's been like the rhythm of my life. But he's like, let's go three miles. And I was like, I can't, I'm not sure that I can do it. Like, I don't know that it's wise, actually. Like, my family needs me me around. So let's not do it. So he's like, well, let's just see what we can do. So we take off running and Pastor Jason actually was with us too. And we take off running and we did it. We did, we, well, not three miles. We, we ran a mile. We ran a mile. And, and uh, his, his, he had a little thing on his phone and it, or on his watch and it beeped and said, well, you've run a mile. And so then we walked just a little bit to kind of catch our breath and regain consciousness. And, and, then, uh, and then he's like, all right, we'll go to another half mile, another half mile. I'm like, oh, all right, okay. So then I run another half mile. And now I got my stomach is hurting me. And then we walk a little more. And he's like, it's a half mile from here to your house. Let's run it. And so I try to run, you know, we, we take off running again. And now I got that side cramp, you know, that side cramp. And this shoulder is hurting. And I'm just like, my legs feel so heavy. And the chicken biscuit's like working its way up. And, and I'm just like, this is terrible. But I just kept going because I was like, this guy, you know, these guys are going to mock me. They're going to make fun of me. Like, I got I to gotta finish. And so I finished, and I, and, and, I, and I made it, and I did it. You know, that was my one time for 2019. It's off, my, off the checklist. I, I did it, and I'm done. You know, most of us, when we're suffering, if there's a way out, we take it as quickly as we can, right? If we're sick and there's medicine that will help us, we take it. And there's probably wisdom in that. And, and if there's a path that's less suffering and there's a path that's more suffering, we tend to choose a path of less suffering. Here's Jesus hanging on the cross, suffering like none of us could possibly understand. And he could have got out of it anytime he wanted. At any time he wanted, he could have. And as Jesus, you can. And when the criminal looks at him and says, save yourself and us, the implication is, Jesus, you can do this. You can save all of us. This can, you can be the hero today. You can save yourself and you can save us. But here's how the criminal was wrong. Jesus knew the truth was this. In order to save the criminal, he couldn't save himself. In order to save you 
In order to save me, he had to endure. He had to remain. And what did Jesus endure? Yes, the physical pain of the cross, but also the emotional, the spiritual, the social, psychological pain, the alienation as the sin of all mankind crushed Jesus. You know, you know what it's like, I know what it's like to feel shamed about something, right? To carry shame about a mistake we've made, to carry that regret. You know how shame affects you? Makes you feel emotionally, mentally? How shame can actually make you feel differently physically? So that's one moment of shame for one mistake that you've made that you feel. Now imagine all the shame for the entirety of your life. Imagine all the shame for the entirety of humankind, all over the world, throughout all of history. And in that moment, all that shame comes on Christ and crushes him. Imagine what he was feeling. Imagine what he was enduring as he literally became sin for you and I to absorb the punishment of God so that we could have the welcome of God. In the midst of all that suffering, the criminal offered him a way out. You can be the hero today. Get yourself off the cross and you'll get us off the cross too. But Jesus knew in order to be really the hero of eternity, he stayed, he endured, he stayed on the cross. And then the last character that we'll look at this morning is the criminal that saw a savior. This is one of the most beautiful stories, I think, in all of the New Testament. This criminal looks over at Jesus and recognizes him for who he is. And what we see in this scene is we see a snapshot of what real repentance looks like. And I want you to hear this because a lot of times we don't understand what real repentance is. But real repentance always starts, number one, with recognizing your own sinfulness. And this guy gets it. Did you notice what he said to the other criminal? We justly deserve this punishment lifetime of breaking the law, a lifetime of sinners, we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. And so he recognized his sinfulness. He recognized that he deserves his punishment. And many of us walk through lives with a sense of entitlement, thinking that we don't, we, we should, things should be better for us and we should get better things and we don't get what we deserve. And the gospel reminds us, you don't want what you deserve. You and I do not want what we deserve as being enemies of God. Thank God none of us get what we deserve. It's the grace of God. And here he recognizes his sinfulness, but then secondly, he not just recognizes his sinfulness, he looks at Jesus and recognizes this man's done nothing wrong. And what he's doing here is he's recognizing Jesus' sinlessness, that Jesus is perfect. He's recognizing Jesus' work on his behalf. That's the second step in repentance. Number one, recognize your sinfulness that you can't save yourself. But number two, look to Jesus and see what he's done. See the beauty of Jesus. See the work of Jesus. What I love about what he says to Jesus is he says, Jesus, when you enter into your kingdom, remember me. He doesn't say, Jesus, remember my, remember my works. Remember my performance. Remember my life. Remember what I've done. Why couldn't he pray that? Because this guy was dying a criminal. He had no opportunity to atone for himself. He had no opportunity to get off the cross and make it right. He couldn't pay back the people that he stole from. He couldn't apologize to the people that he had hurt. He couldn't make things right with his family and his friends that he had probably abandoned many years ago in the pursuit of a life of crime. So he doesn't say, remember my works. He doesn't say, remember that I aligned myself with you in these dying moments. He doesn't say, remember that I'm not like the other criminal. You know, that guy over there who's being nasty to you. Would you remember that I'm not him? He's not saying any of that. All he's saying is, would you just remember me? You know what that is? It's just a cry for mercy. Jesus, would you just have mercy? Would you remember me? And you and I have to cry out the same thing. Not Jesus, save me because I'm impressive. Save me because I've prayed a prayer. Save me because I've been good. Save me because I haven't done this and I have done this. It's simply, Jesus, would you have mercy on me? A sinner, would you have mercy on me? And then we have to trust in Jesus' power to save. 
And what I love about this story is that in the dying moments of his life, with his last breath, after a lifetime of breaking the law, he finds salvation. He finds forgiveness. And Jesus says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. What hope? Some of you, that should give you hope for family members, friends that you've been praying for. It's never too late. They have breath in their lungs. They can call out in their dying moments. And today, they can be rescued by Jesus. But what I really think, what really strikes me about this story of this criminal, and maybe some of you are feeling this tension right now, is that this isn't really, anyone else feel like this doesn't seem fair. There's nothing about this seems fair. Why should he get off the hook here at the end of his life? And that's what we learn about salvation. Salvation's not fair. It's not fair and it's not free. Yes, it's the free gift of God for those who are received, but it costs Jesus something. It's not free. And Philip Yancey says it this way, He says that the cross of Jesus reveals what kind of world we have and what kind of God we have. What kind of world we have and what kind of God we have. On one hand, we have a world of gross unfairness where the most perfect man to ever live is executed as a criminal between two criminals and someone who's lived a lifetime of crime gets off the hook, so to speak, at the last moment. A world of gross unfairness, but on the other hand, we have a God of sacrificial love. And if we didn't have a God of sacrificial love, we would have no hope in this world. This guy doesn't deserve salvation. He hasn't balanced the scales. He hasn't atoned for himself. And that's actually the point. He couldn't atone for himself. And that's why Jesus died on the cross to atone for our sins. And this guy, this criminal who saw Jesus as a savior, he could be in paradise today because Jesus came to die because salvation is for those who know they need a savior. And one of the last things Jesus said before he breathed his last breath was this, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. What a beautiful picture for the church today. How can we be rude, mean, superior, judgmental, critical of other people when at the very heart of our faith is a man dying and praying this prayer? Father, forgive them. We're very different than Jesus, aren't we? Here's what we say. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly what they meant when they said that. They knew exactly that would bother me. They knew that this would get to me, and that's why they did it. And we assign all sorts of unfair motives to people's hearts. And here Jesus prays the exact opposite and sets a beautiful model for us. Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they do. And who was he praying for there? He's praying for the crowds. He's praying for the criminals. And he was praying for you and me. And so the question as we close this morning is simply this. How do you see Jesus? How do you see him? as someone to worship, as someone to devote your life to? Do you see him as someone who is a hindrance to the life you wanna live, kind of gets in the way of who you wanna be? Do you see him as just sort of an add-on to all this other thing that you've built your life on? Or do you see him as the savior, as the king, as the Lord, as the one who gives us hope in every circumstance and has the power, he's the only one that has the power to say, today you'll be with me in paradise because of what he's done for us. Let's bow our heads together this morning.